0: welcome to another episode of A Dash of Science. I'm your host Chris. Each week we get together with an expert in an area that might have some misconceptions or maybe areas of interest that the uh, average citizen might not be aware of. Some of our subject matter may be in hard sciences, but brought down to a level that everybody can appreciate, and some of them might be less scientific and just in general about things that are going on in society or online or etc. But we always try to approach it with fact, logic, and reason. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey everybody. I'm back from my trip to Montana, safe and sound, not on fire, uh which is more than I can say for some parts of that state. But you know, I'm used to that living in Southern California. Uh we are quite often also on fire. I'm actually really surprised that uh we're not more on fire currently. I think it's because we had a lot last year that's really kind of cleared out the area. But anyways, yeah, so I'm back. Yay. Uh, So just a couple quick announcements. If you guys follow the Facebook page at facebook.com slash dash you'll see that we've gotten way more active on there. And we've also introduced something that I like to call quark points. What are quark points? Well, by interacting with us on Facebook, answering riddles and other such things, you will be awarded quark points. That's great. What do they do? Well, uh, I'm still working that out. But in general, the idea is you'll have a running total, and the person who has the most at any given time will have a special title in our Discord and uh, other special things that may come about as the as it you know kind of goes on and evolves on its own. But essentially, the idea is your number one science fan person, uh, etc. So that's for the person with the ongoing running total most points but on top of that the really interesting part is you can spend those points at low levels you can do things like buy a shout out on the podcast hey you cork point winner you're looking handsome Uh, you can potentially turn them in for things like getting a free sticker or a free t-shirt uh, and other general things along those lines. I may even have a really high tier that might let you, the listener, come on the show and discuss with me and one of my guests a topic of your choice. So stay tuned and check us out on facebook.com slash dash of science to participate and earn your quirk points. Anyways, this week we spoke with my friend Rose. Uh, this was uh, kind of complex in putting together we had several scheduled dates to record in the past but due to scheduling conflicts and my vacation etc blah blah boring we weren't actually able to get together until uh well today so in this episode rose and i will be talking about the subject of cognitive bias but before we jump into that uh, i'd just like to take a moment Uh, I, I hate that I've had to do this so many times in such a new show, but the fact of the matter is when you're dealing with guests from all over the country of various... Uh, podcasting experience, which quite frankly, most of my guests have none, uh, you're always going to run into quality variations between shows. Uh, in this particular interview, uh, I think there was an issue with Rose's connection, so there's a little bit of mechanical sound in the voice occasionally and some dropouts, uh, but you know, uh, the content is well worth it. So here we go. Hey guys, I'm here with Rose. How you doing, Rose? Oh, doing pretty good. Excellent. Today we're going to be talking about cognitive biases and how your brain likes to lie to you and make you think you're right when uh, you might not actually be right. So uh, we're going to kind of start off with a little bit about you, Rose. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background?
1: Okay. Um, I have a bachelor of ecology. I graduated summa from the University of I'm fifteen. Um. I was uh, awarded for doing some research as an undergrad, which is pretty cool. I was really into coping mechanisms and uh, I did a lot of research into work addiction, uh, hypothesizing that depressed people are more likely to become work addicts as a way of mediating their own symptoms. Um, I don't know if mediating is the proper word there, but uh, uh, so that that was kind of my interest when I was younger um i got into psychology through um personal experience with mental illness and with like dysphymic disorder which is a form of clinical depression for most of my life and it also runs pretty strongly in my family history as well uh, and that's a really really common for a lot of people who go into psychology i say, probably second only to the fact that there's almost no math, which is another reason a lot of people get into it, <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a pretty broad field, and that's uh, what got me into it. I'm working as a peer support specialist, and a, I do community-based rehabilitation services, Um, So I work with people that are experiencing mental illness and I meet them on the peer level. So not like it's different than being like a therapist coming from a point of authority, whereas I am coming from a point of being in recovery and I recovery while modeling like coping skills and things like that. Um, For community based rehabilitation services, I take people into the community. Um, I teach and for that with them, such as like how to manage their symptoms, deal with their families, uh, behave appropriately in social situations, and basically living skills like living and stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of like a life coach. All my clients are done through Medicaid, so that's really nice. I grew up kind of poor, so I, uh, I really uh, like working with people.
0: Excellent. So you were talking about you, you were doing some research and, and stuff like that. Did that get uh, published or was it just locally through the school or what kind of came of that?
1: Um, I didn't end up publishing it because the the biggest thing that... So basically, what I really want a correlative study between work addiction and depression. And I have my whole study written out. And right before I was going to begin the study school from like Denmark or something released almost exactly what I was going to do. I had to redesign the project from scratch. So I wasn't basically reinventing the wheel.
0: Oh, wow. That really, uh, that's oh, bad timing.
1: Dick, it sucked a bag of dicks. But, um, so, uh, <laughs> after that, I redesigned my study to do, to look at, um, work addiction, the need for achievement, and um kind of like motivations for like social stuff I use the uh circumplex scales of interpersonal values um and basically work addiction depression and a bunch of things that correlate with those things and the study that I did I did on about 200 people which is a it's a respectable sample size it's not enough to really extrapolate to any like huge group of people um, but you can get decent data off of it. And it reconfirmed a link between depression and work addiction. I couldn't really find a, a direction in causality there, which is what I really wanted to look at. Um, and then the other statistically significant finding we found was interesting. Like the, the way we had to sift kind of made it feel like more like data fishing, really, than uh, hard evidence. Right. And what we found was so... In my experiment, we looked at need for achievement using the thematic apperception test, which provided um, two neutral images and then either an image of judgment or an image of embrace. And the people who received the image of judgment in between the neutral and the circumplex scales of interpersonal values, they ranked themselves higher on uh, needing to be like acknowledged for things, like when they be told that they're right, that kind of a thing. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting finding but it was small enough that it really wasn't worth uh, publishing but it definitely opened up the if I wanted to look into things like overwork as a response to like a work reward imbalance like maybe people who environments and feeling judged might more push themselves harder and lead into a work addicted kind of a cycle depending on their personalities like it's it's definitely something that would be interesting to research in the future but i didn't quite have enough evidence for to make it worth publishing at the time
0: okay and that's something you know that happens in research where you're going and and you're trying to find a question and you're doing your your research and you're polling and all this stuff and you find there's not enough evidence to make a distinction one way or the other but there's enough there to say hey we should look more into this you know so it sounds like that's kind of where you were
1: yeah that's pretty much like nail on the head of it but it was a really really good experience for me um and just in general at u of i uh for undergraduates to design and run their own research At least in psychology heard of. So the fact that I got the opportunity to do that in like my junior year of college, which is something that's usually reserved for graduate level work, like even though I wasn't experienced was invaluable. I really learned a lot about the entire process and about like IRBs and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, um, you know, obviously, I met you at U of I, and this one thing that U of I is actually well known for in the physical sciences and uh, engineering is as really being up on providing research experience for undergraduates. And, you know, uh, I wasn't able to design my own research there, but I did participate in several uh, experimentations and got uh, added as a co-author on a paper that was. Published. So, it's one good thing about U of I is they really look out for their undergraduates and getting them research experience.
1: Oh, yeah. There's, uh, as far as general research goes, there's just an absolute abundance of opportunities to participate in research there. And I think that's awesome. Um, the reason I ended up doing my own study was just because my advisor, Dr. Kenneth Locke, he is the shit. I love him. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing but good things to say about him. So, that's how I ended up doing that.
0: And what was the award?
1: Uh, it was the William G. Reese award for outstanding
0: student So, uh, you were talking about your job and how you work with people on a peer basis and how that's different than working as a therapist. Can you kind of talk a little more about like what it is? Maybe walk us through. I mean, obviously don't use a real patient, but walk us through what it's like, uh, the process of when you go in and talk to somebody.
1: Okay. Um, so i unlike a therapist who has a central office i meet clients at their homes or in the community i also take them out into the community um and part of meeting them on a peer basis is it takes away the power between a therapist and a patient um and that's not to say that that power dynamic is a bad thing like it's definitely but uh navigating the world of mental health as someone you know on the bench can be place. And so people who do peer support have experience going through the mental health system and coming out positively on the other side of it.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, So I meet with people. Um, Usually the first thing I ask them is, you know, Hey, how's your week gone? I see my clients for about two hours a week per person. Um, So, yeah, the first thing I do is ask people how they're weak and if they're taking their meds as they're, um, like, scheduled to. Uh, And then, you know, they tell me about how they're weak when they check in on how they've been doing as far as mental health goes. You know, if they have seizures, ask if they had any seizures or how their mood has been. Uh, If they have any personal goals, because my goal-directed, like, clients set out what goals it is they want to work on. And then I help them brainstorm and I encourage towards those goals. So if a client's goal is to be able to get out and do something alone in the community, we take steps toward that. So I'll pick up that client, you know, we'll like say they wanted to go play like Magic the Gathering or something, we would go out into the community and look at places that host that kind of event and we'd pick up a flyer or something. Um, eventually, the goal would be for them to be able to do that kind of stuff on their own. When we're with, when they're with me, you know, we just take continually, like, higher and higher steps towards them completing their own personal goals. And that's kind of a lighthearted one. With some people, it's like, you know, they want to, like, leave an abusive relationship or not more life-altering and potentially, you know, difficult. Um, which isn't to say any disorder is more inherently difficult than another um, but elements are very similar, you know, checking in with clients on their mental health and their goals. But every client is very different. The things I do with clients are different. The things I talk about with clients are different because the entire job is really focused on what wants to achieve. Um, okay. So I'm basically helping them meet self-directed goals.
0: So in a traditional relationship between a patient and a therapist, they're my understanding, not my field, let me prerequisite with that, is there's a boundary that needs to be kept between, you know, that this is a professional relationship that your your therapist isn't your friend. It sounds like in the work that you're doing is that that boundary might be harder to maintain. And then I guess is, are you trying to maintain that?
1: Uh, yes, that boundary is absolutely harder to maintain, but it is absolutely something that you have to maintain. Um, it is extremely important, like because your job, it, it you know it, at times it can really feel like you're kind of a paid friend for people. And in a way you are. you know, you spend time with them, you build them up, you're kind of like a friend that they hang out with and get really good advice from. But part of that is asserting your own boundaries and uh, you know really requiring that people respect those boundaries because otherwise you
0: will get burned out. Sure, sure. All right. Well, uh, that sounds like it's pretty important work, and uh, I, I for one appreciate you, that you're out there doing that. So, thank you from uh, all your people that you're helping.
1: Oh, you're uh, you're super welcome, people that I'm helping. I hope that wasn't too vague of a description. Uh, the job is it's kind of a fast and loose job, uh, but there is a lot of red tape and a lot of paperwork. Like I operate off of a specific treatment plan, like that is set up for it's. Reds- it's hard to describe it in a way that sounds as professional as the job truly is. Um, but it's, it's very legitimate and there's, it's, it's a lot of hard work, but it's very rewarding.
0: Excellent. Well, we're going to go ahead and take a break right now. Uh, we'll come back in our next segment where we really start to get into the common biases that are found in social media, uh, kind of the mind of conspiracy and anti-science. So, uh, stick with us and we'll be back here shortly i don't care about the state of art everything i cared about is
1: falling apart don't want to hear about the new design i don't mind if i get left behind
0: hey guys do you want to donate to a cause and get something in return check out the theironkiwi.com where you can donate and get handcrafted art items in return there's spray paint art There's greeting cards, there's jewelry, and some other fun things. They do direct sales, auctions, and raffles. So if you're interested in helping out not only a singular person, but also an organization of people, then go ahead and check it out. Your donations go to help support the Huntington's Disease Society of America and an individual person with Huntington's. If you're enjoying this show, you've enjoyed other shows, and you want to enjoy more shows, please check us out at patreon.com slash dash of science. You can also look at our Facebook page at facebook.com slash dash of science, and from there you can uh, find links to our Discord channel and communicate with people on there. We also have quark points, which are new, and ways for you to interact and get things in return, so make sure you check those out. Lastly, if you have any questions or comments that you'd like to send to the show, you can send them to chris at, that's right dashofscience.com In our next segment we start to get into cognitive biases some of the most common ones and uh, how it relates to social media, conspiracy theories, and uh, the anti-science movement that seems to be going on in general. So sit back, relax and listen in. Alright, welcome back. I'm here with Rose. We're talking about common biases found uh, in social media and cognitive biases and whatnot. But uh, before we kind of jump into those, let's talk about what a a cognitive bias is. Uh, what can you tell me about that, Rose? Okay, so um,
1: to talk about biases, you kind of have to understand uh, heuristics. Um, So heuristics... Are uh, the way, like your brain's default way of looking at stuff and making judgments when you don't really have the time, information, or the ability to interpret all of the available information in a situation. Okay. Um, they're kind of like your brain's collection of if then equations. You know, under these circumstances, this will be my response, this will be how I interpret that. Um, and they're really, really efficient. Like, I don't think the human brain would work nearly as well as it does if we didn't have heuristics to guide it, but they don't always work as well as they're supposed to. And cognitive biases are what happens when heuristics lead to irrational. act.
0: Okay. So when we're talking about cognitive biases, these are things that occur that kind of we base them off of things in our experiences that we know right is, and that's kind of what i've got is that kind of uh a good description of heuristics
1: yes um so cognitive biases they cognitive biases affect the way that you look at the world um but they're also shaped by your experiences in the world you know if something happens to you enough times you'll develop a bias which can of encounter
0: okay I guess it's important to note that cognitive biases uh when you have a cognitive bias it doesn't automatically mean that you're wrong, right? It just oh, means No, that... not at all. Go ahead.
1: Um yeah, a cognitive bias isn't inherently a bad thing. It's more of a neutral thing. Um like they're they're not malicious, you know. People don't really have a choice in terms of whether or not they are biased like every single person in the world is biased like it's just a, it's a product of the human condition to be biased however what really matters is actions you know taking the time to learn what your biases are and then realizing that you have them and acting according your biases are irrational and making you look like an asshole then you know see your bias recognize it and then don't act the action that really determines you know the quality of the person biases aren't something that can really be helped
0: yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's like we are saying, doesn't necessarily make you wrong. Everybody has them. I think, you know, we have, we place a lot of emphasis on first impressions, but I feel like our first impressions are probably more prone to these biases than, than, you know, long-term, you know, gathering information on, on things or people and then making a decision later on.
1: Oh, definitely. Like with first impressions, everything you do related to whatever that first impression was of calls back to it you now view everything in terms of that first impression like so it's it's really hard to overcome a first impression in that sense because everything is constantly like that becomes the bar by which all other impressions are judged
0: yes exactly and when i was looking at these i kind of noticed that you know i, I kind of wanted to structure the show as we talked about them about breaking it down into the kind of the categories in, in in how they're categorized and stuff but i I came to the conclusion that that's kind of a soft area there's no real you know it's not like classification of species right where there's these specific things that qualify you know this is that and that is something else it's kind of they're kind of fluid uh i don't do you have any comments on that
1: i think fluid is a really good term for it you know they're they're a little amorphous in a way like i mean everyone has them they affect our behavior to varying degrees. You know, it depends on the strength of the bias and also the strength of your own awareness about that bias.
0: Okay. So what I have found is that there are kind of four very general ways to kind of categorize uh, uh, biases and I, I kind of pushed away from uh, structuring the show this way But I kind of did want to mention in the beginning because they're interesting to think about so first you have Biases that result because you have too much information to sort through uh, There's another one are the other ones that are not enough meaning to things that, that uh, the information that you have there's uh, a Need to act quickly So you're not taking the proper time to really analyze the data that you have and then the last and probably uh, a really interesting one in my mind anyways is the limits of your memory and this could be not remembering things at all it could be only remembering negative things or positive things or misremembering things so that's kind of an interesting one uh in it's those.
1: interesting um that you bring up remembering like negative things positive things etc and um, this isn't necessarily related to bias i mean i guess all things are technically related to bias but the uh, emotion negative re- events is about 10 times stronger on our general state than positive events. So for like one negative interaction, you need to have 10 positive interactions to outweigh it, like psychologically speaking, which I think uh, kind of plays into the way biases form.
0: Yeah, that's actually a good thing to know. And And it's interesting because you have people generally who are kind of negative people when it comes to experiences so they experience one thing that's negative and they don't want to try it again and then you have other people that that you know keep going at it and it makes me wonder do you think the base state because of this is to be more negative about experiences?
1: Okay so I think the key difference in those kind of people um probably lies in resiliency which is your ability to bounce back from a negative experience and not let it define who you are at hand. Um, And I would say people that tend to power through negative experiences until they become good experiences, and this is totally conjecture on my part, but I would say those people are probably more optimistic in general, and they've probably had more positive experiences in general, which kind of give them the opportunity to have that optimism, you know, if you've had a lot of opportunities in your life, then I feel like you're more likely to take the negative ones with kind of a grain of salt and give those experiences to the benefit of the doubt in the hopes that they'll really turn around for you. If you've always had primarily negative experiences or you're on the under the heel of life, so to speak, then I feel like you're gonna be a lot less hopeful and you're not gonna really, you know, branch out and run the risk of once once you've been burned.
0: That is interesting to bring up to just the concept of resiliency is it's almost deserving of an entire episode of itself because it's fundamental in how people react to so many things. You know, it's, it's part of the difference between people going and going to war and coming back seriously messed up versus just kind of messed up or perfectly okay. You know, about childhood experiences, you know, two children in the same family can experience the same kind of trauma and one will be fine and one isn't. So that is that's kind of an interesting topic all in itself. I don't want to get too deep into that because, like I said, that's probably an entire episode. But interesting to note, at least, I guess.
1: Yeah, We could do a resiliency podcast someday. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Maybe I'll write that down on my list to do in the future. So uh, kind of getting into some of the more common biases. The first one I have to mention because it's it's everywhere and we all do it. And I almost feel like it's probably one of the biggest ones done is confirmation bias.
1: In my notes, I have the very first sentence as, "In my opinion, bias is by far the most prominent and easily identifiable cognitive bias."
0: <laughs> well, I think the fact that we agree on this probably uh, gives some, uh, uh, I guess, some strength to that argument.
1: Well, I mean, basically, it it just it makes a lot of like, and it's a thing that it's really, really easy to notice, especially in other people. But it's also such a strong drive that even when you know it's a thing that exists, you just make excuses for it. Uh, when it comes to your own confirmation bias
0: yeah you get that's through- absolutely right like i've y- and this kind of there's a, a bias i want to talk about later on that, i mean i'll mention it probably again then but there is a bias that is literally the ability to recognize bias in others but not yourself and i find that kind of amusing
1: i've been like and i know that is listed as a bias but i feel like that's just kind of part of all cognitive biases i mean i feel like that's what a exist and so it applies very very broadly.
0: Absolutely. So with confirmation bias, it's kind of what I mean, I'm sure this has been discussed a lot especially with the uh the political upset and unrest on the internet has come up a lot of people talking about it, but just in case those that are listening don't know, what what's confirmation bias?
1: Okay, so confirmation bias is, um, it's where you seek out and you more readily believe information that affirms your beliefs and you reject evidence that defies your beliefs, uh, and I, kind of in practice, uh, so when you're presented with evidence that contradicts something you believe, you know, it kind of refutes it, uh, if you're in a position where you can't outright deny it, you view it as, like, an exception to the rule. Whereas when you see something that even you just kind of treat it as the rule until proven otherwise You basically weigh anything that confirms the way you feel very heavily and anything that denies it you kind of salt
0: One of the interesting things too that I think about when we're discussing confirmation bias and in all biases really as we talked about earlier about how a bias doesn't necessarily make you wrong but it may, it kind of makes me think that when you are correct When you have this bias and your opinion happens to be correct, that that almost makes it worse in the future for distinguishing uh, incorrect and correct, you know, facts, I guess.
1: Oh, yeah. Now, in in that sense, like having your bias confirmed and well, I mean, at the same point, always wrong. Like there's a reason that we develop them. It's just that they tend to be wrong in certain contexts and those contexts make us look like assholes. But um in the sense of having incorrect bias intermittently validated, I feel like it kind of becomes a skinner box at that point. Like it's and are are you familiar with the concept of a skinner box?
0: Uh no. Let's let's talk about that for a second.
1: Okay, so uh BF Skinner was a behaviorist and he did a bunch of experiments on rats and he would have them press a lever and they would get a treat when they pressed the lever. And for a certain subset of rats, every time they pressed the letter lever, they would get a treat. And for another subset of other time they pressed the lever, they would get a treat. And for the last subset of rats, they would press the lever and they would get a treat at random. And for the rats that always got a treat when they stopped getting treats, they gave up pretty quickly and accepted that the circumstances had changed. The rats who got the treats like every other press... I'm, I'm bastardizing the hell out of this, but it gives you the general idea... <laughs> Um, they took a little bit longer to stop pressing the button, whereas the rats that got the, you know, semi at random, never stopped pressing it. So it's that, it's that, like, World That's... of Warcraft, that game is one giant Skinner box, you know, it's this <laughs> intermittent reward system. So if you have a bias, you rewarded, you're never fully gonna accept that your bias may not be correct. And this is all conjecture. Um, But this is my interpretation of, I guess, that concept, you know.
0: That's a really good relationship because I understand. And after you start talking about it, I remembered it. I think it relates also to the idea of uh, what makes like gambling so addictive is that, you know, random reward amount and random winning. Exactly it. And I never really, I never connected that to this confirmation bias, but it makes sense. I mean, as we're talking about it, if, you know, you're randomly right, (laughs) then you're less likely to consider the fact that you're wrong. Uh, So that's that's interesting. That's a good connection. Um, I also want to point out that this kind of relates to the illusory truth effect uh i think they kind of go hand in hand and that's the tendency to believe information to be correct just because you constantly hear it and i think that's kind of like the idea behind like you know old wives tales and stuff like that where you believe these things because everybody said it you grew up being told this you know what i'm saying
1: yeah well there's so there's a couple different explanations for the truth effect um and i think um what we were just talking about relates to the truth effect because in confirmation bias you constantly seek out things that confirm your beliefs and part of that is surrounding uh, what happens is that you surround yourself with people who share your beliefs so you have your beliefs you know repeated in your face echo chamber Um, and that really bolsters the illusory truth effect and a big part of what they makes the work is uh, so when you hear something enough times regardless of the source, your brain essentially starts feeling like one of those sources has to be credible. Or if you've heard it from many sources, it's more likely to have a nugget of truth to it. Otherwise, why would it be so widespread? Right. And out loud, it's not that logical, but to your brain, that's. Um, in psychology, we also have something called the mere exposure effect or the familiarity principle. And we tend to develop preferences for things simply just by being exposed to them
0: is that kind of Uh, like uh the idea of maybe this is the same thing maybe this is something different but things that are more easy for you to believe are uh your you tend to believe are correct versus things that seem outside of your experiences seem to be harder to believe
1: um i'm sure they're related i definitely support that theory like i think that makes um and i guess yeah when you experience things personally they seem you know more believable the easier they understand they are and if something's easy for you to understand it's probably related to something that you're already like well versed in and familiar with so I guess in that whole circle um, I think a good example of like the familiarity principle um, and why as you in, they become more familiar more easy to understand you know they sway your biases more heavily um but like think of if you were at work or something and there was a new person you were unsure about them or you just straight up didn't like them until you were actually oh this guy's really awesome like that's a really good the familiarity principle to kind of explain what i was talking about earlier and more like a more of
0: a real world example okay now we were kind of talking about in this segment uh how these relate to social media i think one of the biggest problems with social media i mean don't get me wrong social media is great but i think it makes it easier to surround ourselves with people of like mind i think the echo chambers on the internet in general and social media specifically uh i think has had a very powerful uh, effect especially right now with everything being so polarized in politics and and beliefs and 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 rights and, and all that stuff uh what do you think about that
1: i 110% agree with that statement um <laughs> and if what leads us to like things and become things and to want to be around things is becoming familiar with it then by kind of shoving ourselves in this echo chamber of like-minded people we're never going to get to the point where we understand people who are different from us like we're just going to be encouraged to just keep feeding ourselves with the same information and that's you know how you become divisive
0: yes definitely i'd have to agree with that so we kind of mentioned earlier about the difference between be more readily believing things you've experienced versus uh, things that you haven't. And I think that that's a good kind of segue into our next bias called the false consensus effect, which uh, from what I understand, is essentially the idea or belief that that you or me as a person represent, the average person and therefore my experiences are the average experiences and my beliefs are the average beliefs, etc. And I think uh, we see a lot of issues with that right now. What do you think?
1: It is a very prominent thing. I think it is very relevant right now in the current climate of America. It's also related to some others that we'll talk about later on. Um, But I think what's to understand about the false consensus effect is why we have the false consensus effect. Um, so, you know, as we tend to leave, like our feelings and opinions are the norm in society, but why wouldn't we? Because if our beliefs and opinions aren't worthy of being held by a majority of people, why would we have them? And assuming anything else is to imply that the way you act and you feel is suboptimal and our brains don't want to feel that way. You know, we feel that way because we'd be insulting ourselves to feel like beliefs aren't normal and aren't worthy of being held by the majority.
0: Okay, I see, I see. So kind of when we're talking about false consensus effect. I think this kind of goes hand in hand. It's, it's almost bolstered by like anecdotal stories. And you see it a lot when we talk about especially like social issues with like minimum wage or with the idea of opportunityism or systemic racism. We get these people this idea of, well, you know, I was born poor and I was successful. Therefore, everybody can be you know, I think that's one of, the, one of the things that we see a lot uh, on arguments going on right now that's really based primarily in this bias.
1: I think when it comes to being poor, and I find it interesting that you mentioned, like, that... Uh, I read a quote the other day that really resonated with me. I don't think this will answer your question. I just feel like it's relevant.
0: <laughs> no problem.
1: It is... There's kind of two, like, different schools of thought. One of which is, I want people suffer because i have suffered and the other is i don't want anyone to suffer the way that i did because i know how shitty that feels and i feel like one of those mindsets you have really determines your behavior
0: i can see that that's definitely uh an interesting thought to to consider and especially when you try and reflect on these things with yourself like what kind of person am i you know what i mean
1: yeah, I definitely think, as far as reflecting on yourself, that uh, anyone listening to this podcast, all all five of you,
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, that's uh, should really
1: <laughs> take a moment to try and uh, figure out what their like biases are, or what their kind of like their feelings on things are, uh, like really strong opinions that they hold, not necessarily biases, and just kind of look at how they formed that. You know, like do people hold the same opinions? Uh, what have you heard that kind of strengthens your opinions and when you've been things that disprove ways that you feel like how do you respond to that information you know it, it, i don't know what all come out of it but I, I feel like every time i've done that i'm being a more understanding person
0: yeah i definitely can can uh agree with that i think the important thing to remember is you're probably not going to catch your own biases in the midst of making them so I think it's a good exercise to periodically sit down and just be aware of, or try to be aware of what opinions you have that may lead to biases in the future, right? So it, when you have strong opinions on a matter, you're going to be subject to be biased in that matter, no matter who you are. So, you know, I think that's kind of an important, you know, thing to know as well.
1: Yes, definitely.
0: So- outside of false consensus I think I'm trying to kind of do these on on things that I see most often on social media and this is just my personal observations not necessarily anything that's that's proven by data which is abnormal for me I usually like to go with statistics but I kind of wanted to do this on based on what I feel given the nature of this particular podcast. So the next one in line I have is system justification. And I had some notes written on this, but we were talking before about how you kind of had some, something that you want to talk about on this one. So I'll, I'll let you go. Yeah.
1: I uh, I wanted to talk about, because system justification is really easy to talk about in a political sense. You know, it's, it's really easy to kind of segue into progress and maintenance. But uh, I had an example that I'll talk about shortly of how it, can be a lot broader and more pervasive and how it affects all of us, and not just people of certain political sects. Sure. Um, so Dan Ariely is a behavioral economist, and he's one of my personal heroes. Like, I I read um, one of his books when I was in Psychology of Judgment, and this changed my life. He also has an excellent TED talk called Are We in Control of Our Own Decisions? which uh, actually mentions the study that I'm going to talk about. He's, he's a God and everyone should read everything that he writes <laughs>
0: <But> <laughs>
1: okay. anyway. Um, so uh, the best example he provides is about organ donation in Europe. Um, and you should really look at it seeing it visually, I think really enhances the effect, but basically um, you have a bunch of countries that are really similar culture and history and all of that stuff. And, so for Austria, Belgium, France, Hungary, Poland, and Portugal, they all have over 98% in their organ donation programs. And uh, Sweden's at about 85%. Over in Denmark, the UK, and Germany, it's all below 20%. Uh, the Netherlands has it about just above 27% because they've done some pretty heavy uh, campaigning to get everyone to opt in for it. And that's mm-hmm. a massive discrepancy. Like people were hypothesizing all sorts of different reasons for that. Like, absolutely incredible difference on something yeah, like organ would donation. I think
0: with a difference like that that there's some cultural or moral issue at the heart of it. That's what I would think just looking at that.
1: Yeah, like it's really like it's almost inexplicable to have such similar countries with such a huge discrepancy on something that seems as uncontroversial as organ donation. But the only difference between the countries with almost 100% and less than 20 is that one box is to opt in and the other box is that's just an example of the power of maintaining the status quo, you know. Um, When it comes to stuff like organ donation, it's a really difficult decision because it kind of forces you to face your own mortality. So what people end up doing is just not checking off the box, no matter what the box says, because it's easier to do that. So what
0: I'm what I'm understanding is in the countries that were high, you have to check a box to opt out and the countries that were low, you have to check a box to opt in. Yeah, that's really interesting.
1: Yeah, that like all of his work is like that. Like he's I I could have done this entire uh podcast just talking about Dan Ariely. It was amazing.
0: <laughs> well, that might be something that we can do in the future. Uh you should keep notes of these things that we're coming up with and we can do them on future episodes maybe.
1: Ah, uh, the book I was referencing is called Predictably Irrational and I'm pretty sure the TED Talk based on it is called Are We in Control of Our Own Decision Making.
0: All right, cool. One thing that I wanted to talk about with the system justification that goes more in line with things that I was talking about, but I don't think it's, it, it's going to be a completely awkward uh, tangent here is that the system justification, when it does apply to things like social issues, I think goes hand in hand with the belief that the, the just world theory, the idea that in general, the world evens out fair you know, that that things are balanced, you know, the idea of karma, that kind of stuff. So uh, if we leave things as are, we don't need to really fix things because in general, things tend to work out fair.
1: It's basically a case of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, And I think that really stems from people having a fear of the unknown, you know, like we may, there might be better ways to do things, but if we have a way to do things that works, most people would rather not gamble on a chance to improve it if it means there's also a chance that it won't work properly not to mention learning new things is hard and scary Um, and that's why i maintain the status quo all
0: right so we when we come from a system justification that kind of leads into this also this idea of naive realism where we kind of feel like well you know We're objective and we're doing our due diligence. So anybody who disagrees with us is obviously just misinformed or irrational or biased in some way. Right. So I think uh, we kind of have this belief naturally that obviously we're not wrong because if we thought we were wrong, we wouldn't hopefully still be claiming the things we're claiming. Right.
1: Yeah. So. The way I look at naive realism is very, very similar to how I look at the false consensus effect. You know, it's a case of why would we hold our beliefs if they were anything less than optimal? And that a little bit to talk about more on the just world theory if we could go back sure. to that in a Yeah, second.
0: where whatever you got. Let me have it.
1: Um so I think the just world theory, it it first of all, it's pleasant theory, like people just believing that the world is, you know, fair uh it's just being a recipient of the world not being fair that makes that theory suck Uh,
0: and (laughs) one of the
1: (laughs) one of the biggest examples of of world theory can suck um is like when people get raped Uh, and I, i know that's a really but that's why people ask you know what was she wearing was she drinking uh, the right. reason that we have the just world theory is because people want to believe that the world is just and things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, because it's just less terrifying to view it that way. Because when you view the Absolutely.
0: world,
1: like, try to do good things and be a good person, then bad things shouldn't happen to you. And it's still never happened to me kind of thing, but it's really, it's it, makes, it, it can make you look like an asshole, but it's primarily a self-defense mechanism
0: absolutely blind and incorrect it is and i'd like to add on to that too in kind of in conjunction with that there's also we like to have a reason for things happening especially when they're bad because if there's a reason for it then we can avoid that reason and be confident that it's not going to happen to us because the idea that a bad thing can happen to somebody for no reason is scary
1: terrifying
0: people don't like to feel like they're not in control
1: yeah, that's that's pretty much like the gist of it. I just, that was something I really felt like it was important to extrapolate on, because it's really easy to shit on the people, just world theory, and, you know, kind of blame the victim, but I don't think we're really going to get anywhere as a society until we go out of our way to try and understand what drives people to feel so many things. The answer to that is fear.
0: Yes, definitely. I think fear is probably a primary driver to many of the biases that we're talking about today. So... we were talking about uh naive realism a a second ago and we kind of talked we said everything i want to say about that but i wanted to point out that these sorts of biases are probably the most difficult for us to recognize in ourselves and fight because the kind of The basis of what they are built on is the idea that we aren't recognizing that this is correct So, you know, do you have any ideas on on how we can try to better? uh, I guess prevent ourselves from falling into these traps
1: I don't think we can prevent ourselves from developing these biases, but I think we can recognize them Um, because like with naive realism essentially like any explanation other than our opinions and feelings being moral rational and justified is pretty fucking painful to our egos <laughs> we don't want to feel that way
0: <laughs> right. um
1: but what people fail to take into account is that everyone feels that way all many of us feel very differently and we can't all be correct <laughs> We're, you know, you're playing on the averages here, but if you and someone else have realism and have opposite opinions, one of you is gonna be wrong. That's true. Uh, and earlier when I was talking about, you know, encouraging people to really look at what their strongly held opinion and look at how you formed them, something I find really, really humanizing to me is that I look at people who I have very different opinions from, like polar opposite opinions, for me, it's really humanizing to realize that those people's biases—they form. They, we might not have the same biases, we might not have the same opinions, but we, affor- we formed those opinions and biases in very, very similar ways. The mechanisms for developing them are, like, mentally a lot alike. And I think, like, taking that into consideration and focusing on that—they uh, are different from you—and in turn makes it more easy to accept your own faults because, like for everything that you're wrong on someone else is going to be wrong about something that you're right on you know it's it's all cycle and i think if you view the world through that lens uh it's a lot easier to come to terms with your own shortcomings
0: i think that's absolutely right we're running a little long here on this segment so i'm gonna take a break now when we get back we'll finish up these biases and we'll talk a little about storytelling versus statistics and anecdotal evidence uh, and things of that nature so stick with us we'll be right back I don't care about the state of art, everything I cared about is
1: falling apart, don't want to hear about the new design, I don't mind if I get left behind.
0: I've, I've said it a bunch of times on, on this show
1: that I think the entertainment industry has accidentally crossed over with the music industry to the average listener, that it all comes across
0: as music. Mm. You're listening to The Musician's Podcast with me, Matt Oldis.
1: It's an absolute blinder of a conversation, I, I really had a lot of fun talking to Callum. But Callum is the drummer for
0: a band called Bare Knuckle Parade. If you've had your share of science for the day, and you want to hear some music, and hear about the music industry, check out The Musician's Podcast at www.themusicianpodcast.com. Hear from musicians and other people in the music industry. Check it out now. Hey, I'm here talking with Rose about cognitive biases. In this next segment, we're going to finish up some of the more, uh, I guess, mm, regularly occurring biases we see online and uh, talk a little bit about anecdotal evidence and storytelling uh, and then kind of wrap things up. So here we go. All right, welcome back, everybody. Uh, we're here with Rose talking about cognitive biases and, and similar issues. When we left, uh, we were just getting ready to start talking about uh, some some attribute errors, uh, or one specifically. But Rose, you said you wanted to kind of give an overview of, of those. You, you want to do that now?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, attribution errors could kind of warrant an entire podcast of their own. Um, but they're i just as far as biases in general go i think they're the core driver for a lot of biases and they're basically they come up when we we attribute someone's behavior to an incorrect cause um and so social psychology uh is where we've come up with this idea that's called the fundamental attribution error and it's the one that i really resonate with because it's just it's so applicable and we're of it and once you like think about it you realize just how guilty you are of it right um and that's basically when you see someone do something you treat it as a R rather than something circumstantial so when you see someone um being an asshole like they park badly you think that person is an asshole
0: I may be guilty of that. Asshole.
1: <laughs> it's because of the situation. It's circumstantial it's because something has given you a reason to act like an asshole. It's not in general. We don't offer other people that same uh, room for error. And that's basically the fundamental attribution error. And I just feel like it's something very important to mention. when we're
0: Definitely. I think that has some relevance obviously here, since it, it definitely sounds like it, it is the fundamental issue, uh, so to speak. So, that's kind of the overview before we kind of talk. I, I picked this one out specifically because I feel like this is kind of one of the basis of, of stereotyping, which I, now I have a very, uh, what do you call it, not popular opinion when it comes to stereotyping. In, and that is that stereotyping in and of itself isn't naturally good or bad. I think it's based on human beings' Uh, natural tendencies to group things in general, which we start doing uh, when we're like three years old, you know, Uh, everybody, we hear stereotyping and our brain thinks stereotyping, IE racism, right? But that's not necessarily all that stereotyping is. But anyways, we'll leave that alone and and we'll say that group attribute error uh, is, is to me, one of the, the founding issues behind stereotyping and, and potentially racism and other sorts of prejudice. What do you think about that?
1: Oh, yeah, I think group attribution error is almost just a fancy stereotyping. Right. Um, it's basically, it's the belief that an individual's behavior, um, you're attributing it to the group that they're a part of, which is a specific view of the attribution error. Or when you see that a group has a belief, you apply that belief to all of its members. And that's kind of, you know, if they don't hold that, then why are they a member of that group? You know, whether or not that's... Like, with race, that's something that's within their control. Right. That's, that's basically a group attribution error. It's a thing that everybody does, but, like, all biases, you know, it's a thing that you kind of just have to be wary of and notice it. Like, I have, as a waitress, like, my biggest example of that is, um, like, when I get, like, college-age African-American kids, Like, my first thought is that, you know, they're not going to tip me. And that makes me feel like a racist asshole. But, and everybody has those kinds of feelings. It's just an implicit bias that I happen to be aware of. And so my response to that is to give them really good service anyway, because it is not fair to treat individuals based on your interpretation of the group to which they belong. They are, you know, individual.
0: Right. And I think... What's interesting about this, too, is it kind of it's almost uh, uh what's the word, I guess, buffed up. I'm going to go with that. That's not what I'm looking for, but it's almost buffed up from some of the other issues that we've been talking about. Right. So when you see somebody within that group who's doing something that you've already attributed to that group that makes your belief even stronger More so than seeing three or four people in a row who aren't, you know, exhibiting that same kind of uh, whatever it is that you've attributed to that group, right? So that's kind of like the idea where you have, you know, with, with gang members and clothing or with minorities and crime or... You know, the big one (laughs) where I'm from is Asians and driving. So anytime you see in that particular instance, somebody driving poorly and you go and you see them and that person just happens to be Asian, even though there's 15 other people around them driving poorly who are not, it reinforces that idea that this is a attribute uh, from the group, in this case, that group being Asian. So it's interesting how they kind of support each other.
1: Oh, definitely. Novel things are going to be a lot more salient to you so like with waiting tables the reality is that i you know i rarely serve african-american people because i live in northern college students and the bulk of people who are going to treat me poorly are probably going to be white but like they're not as novel to me so they don't stand out as prominently in my head Um, and that also goes for like the behavior that's happening like with um like you mentioned like driving even though everyone around them is driving terribly bad driving is really going to stand out and the fact that they are asian is going to make it out even further because both of those things are novel compared to what you're used to seeing so the two of them together is just one big glaring thing that's going to stick in your brain and every time that happens once like a thing that you assume happens on a very regular basis even though it was just like a couple novel occurrences
0: That's definitely a a good way to, uh, kind of look at that. And, and like, again, just, you know, you're hearing that. And when you're from an area or a group of people that then themselves have that, that belief, then you've got that reoccurring idea issue and the echo chamber issue and all of that. Again, it just kind of, it compounds, uh, and, and makes it even worse. So being able to recognize it, like, like you were saying you have is very important because you're absolutely right. And there is no circumstances that treating an individual person whom you've never met and has nothing done nothing to you, based off of issues of things you've you've you know experienced from other people who are in some form of group with that that person that you've seen. So I know it's kind of a long-winded, complex way of saying what you've already said. But so, is there anything else that you want to talk about with this particular uh, uh, bias?
1: No, I feel like we covered it pretty pretty well. I think uh, with that bias. Like, more than any other, I feel like it's one of the most easy biases to recognize within yourself because it really shapes kind of the way that you think and the way that you behave. And a little bit of attention, it's really easy to notice that you're doing it. Um, so I would just I would encourage people maybe just to start. They want to start looking at cognitive biases.
0: That is very true. Uh... So the next one I have written down is authority bias, which I've kind of wrapped around along with, we're not really doing fallacies today per se, but, uh, the appeal to authority fallacy and this authority bias, I think a lot of people have heard of this, but I think people use it wrong a lot.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, so the authority bias, it, it's basically a cognitive shortcut. Um, and it's it makes a lot of sense and I think deferring in a lot of ways is a good thing if you aren't very well versed what it is that you're talking about the problems on an authority uh either someone quotes an authority in a way that misrepresents what they're an authority on or someone abuses the authority they have to mislead someone below them um Another good example of uh, kind of the authority bias is the Milgram experiment. Are you ex- are you familiar with that? Not at all. Okay, so, and this, I guess, isn't necessarily related to what I was just talking about, but um, <laughs> it's, uh, so the Milgram experiment was done by Stanley Milgram, and um, it had a bunch of like people that they had hired to be part of this experiment and they asked questions of people on the other side of a wall and when they got the answer wrong they gave them an electric shock and the electric shocks were like of diagnosis and they had an actor on the other side they weren't really being shocked you know eventually they're like screaming it goes silent and it like i think it was like 60 or 70 percent of people like continued to press the button because to even after they had said that they were uncomfortable Um, And there's a lot of, like, really ethical things going on with the Milgram experiment that would no longer be allowed uh, through any modern IRB. But um, I think it really, uh, it shines a light on just how much authority people think and what people are willing to do. You know, people like the Milgram experiment, which came about as a response to, like, Nazism and World War II and I think in that way, guess because right now everyone's calling each other Nazis, like it's a little right. bit culturally relevant. Um, yeah, I would absolutely so, yeah.
0: agree with that. Kind of one of the current issues I see also going on with authority bias is I kind of made a pact that I wouldn't have an episode on like climate science and stuff for reasons I've already gotten into. But right or wrong, one way or the other, I see the issue of authority bias being... Uh, Abused, I guess, or used or, or, or an issue that's being present, I guess is a good way to say it in that. So me, I have a background in physics, uh, but I do not have a background in climate and, or meteorology or any of the related fields to that sort of stuff. So when I say stuff about it, it's my opinion based off of readings that I've done. I'm not an authority. And yet my field is a hundred times closer to uh climate studies than other people who are coming out and claiming that they're an authority like electrical engineers, petroleum engineers, uh you know all these people that are engineering or other like computer scientists are so far away from that field and they're speaking on it and they're being quoted and held up as proof when i think that's a primary case of authority bias
1: yeah i guess that makes sense like authority bias like it can definitely be an issue if you're assuming that because you have authority your authority extends to other areas when it does not
0: right i think that that's a that's probably the biggest issue that i personally see going along with it but i don't know uh anything else you want to want to talk about on authority bias
1: No, I feel like authority bias is one of the, like, more kind of self-explanatory biases. Uh, I think one thing that people should bias is when someone is defecting to authority, um, to just look at the authority in question. Um, Because it's really, it can be easy to make yourself look like you're an authority on something for the purpose of misleading. So when you see a claim, like, uh, if you see bullshit on, like, naturalnews.com and it's attributing some doctor saying, like, vaccines cause, like, autism or something, like like <laughs> the guy who wrote the article claiming vaccines cause autism who has now been stripped of his medical license, he pr- paraded himself as a legitimate authority and turned out to not be a legitimate authority and look where we are now.
0: Right. Like, and, you know, I actually... <laughs> Kind of off subject overall, but related to this. uh, Did you ever read why he wrote that article or that paper, I guess? Uh, No, I did not. He was actually in the process of developing a different recipe or build for a different uh, set of vaccinations, essentially. So his plan was to first come out and discredit this group of vaccinations so that his company could release this other better healthier less autism calling recipe of vaccinations. Uh luckily he got caught before it got that far but it's nobody talks about that, you know, that that information doesn't seem to get out there.
1: You're right. I'm really surprised that I had never heard that. So now we're just stuck with a bunch of people Believing vaccines cause autism and having measles outbreaks, and we don't have his like purported new solution.
0: <laughs> exactly. Great <laughs> win for humanity. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, after authority bias, we have illusory correlation, right? So uh, let's talk about that for a minute, if you have. Oh, that.
1: <laughs> so my notes on it are pretty short. Um, like what I have in big bold capital letters is just the mantra of all statistics correlation does not imply causation exactly i feel like i could just be repeating that for the next five minutes and maybe people might eventually listen to it um but my my favorite example not implying causation two like seemingly unrelated things that go up at the same rate murder and ice cream sales yes and (laughs) yeah at first you're like what the hell but those things are just as correlated as like any other things don't have any effect on each other might be correlated like i had found a website that shows like weird things that were correlated and now i wish i had looked it up before (laughs) doing this podcast but like the determining factor in murder murder and ice cream sales is just that both of those things go up in the summer like they're not actually related they don't cause one another murderers aren't looking shortcake pops while they're cutting people's heads off like that's <laughs> that's not the way it works and people need to realize that that's how you know that's just a thing like you might see two things and assume that they're correlated because they be because they're happening at the same time but they might be totally unrelated and that's just something that you should all-
0: and that is correct. something that i want to kind of add on here too is because there are a lot of people that will that quote you know correlation is not causation like the bible but a lot of these people i think are also blindly quoting it because they hear and it is correct but something to point out is that correlation is not causation is not in and of itself a valid argument to something right because it doesn't mean that it's not causation either correlation simply means that something is going on in both of these that's causing them both to be positively or negatively correlated. And if you are serious about looking into it, you just need to look into it farther to confirm, uh, that something is actually a causation here or that they're completely not related. Right.
1: Uh, I 100% agree with you there. And, um, so I've got written under illusory correlation is mid to, uh, the, group attribution bias I saw earlier, Um, because I was talking about how weird behavior is a little bit more salient, and that's kind of how it's come into play. You know, you see something weird and it sticks, and it happens more than once, it really sticks, and suddenly it's a thing that you're expecting, so you grossly overestimate like the frequency of that kind of thing happening. And uh, like right now, in our political climate, vocal minorities get perceived as the voice of the party they claim to represent. Like, you see... Um, like one small group being very loud and discussing some like fringe belief, and you attribute it all of like the group they're talking about because obviously if these people claim to be part of this group, um, and all you remember is that, then you're gonna associate that with the whole group. Absolutely. That's all I really had written for illusory correlation.
0: One thing that I wanted to note too about this is that this in my mind, is the basis of every conspiracy theory ever uh, theorized, I guess. Uh, you know, when you see something and you, you know, it, it plays into some of the other stuff like confirmation bias and whatnot that we we're talking about. But when you see two events and you're looking for something, and so you find something or come up with something in your brain that to you makes reasonable sense, you know, then to you it must be true even though there's no actual evidence that says it is uh it because it's reasonable to you that that's something that would cause you know a causes b then 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 b and a must be true right so i I think that that's all also interesting to think about when looking at a lot of the conspiracy theories going around
1: oh definitely jet fuel can't melt steel beams chris
0: oh god i don't even want to talk about it
1: (laughs) um Yeah, no, I I definitely agree as far as um, conspiracy theory. When you go into something already believing it and try to work the logic backwards, it's a lot lot easier to bend information to fit what you believe uh, than it is to find genuine information supporting your... Like, build a belief starting with information.
0: Right and it kind of uh it kind of builds a closed loop so to speak because you're constantly building on this okay so you've made this connection between these two events and now you use the idea that that is true to justify a third event and a fourth event and so on and eventually you've built this giant tower of conspiracy that's all built on this Invalid argument at the very beginning and it kind of it's related to subjective uh, validation also to where you know You tend to think that things are more valid or correct when they have personal meaning to you and I I, I feel like people that are big into con- Conspiracy theories that aren't mentally ill have a you know it has personal meaning to them in some way
1: Yeah, I would definitely like agree with that like our personal experiences tend to trump like any other evidence were provided like because other evidence we have to, you know, really process and think about and kind of view in uh, uh more outsider's context, whereas things that we actually experience, all else feels real to us.
0: Right. And uh, now I don't, you know, I don't think there's anything else to say on that. I mean, that's really, that's, you, you kind of hit it there. So. The backfire effect, right? So the left accuses the right constantly of this backfire effect with things, but it is equally happening on both sides, right? Just because you're right occasionally in what you believe doesn't mean that you're not still making you know, horribly bad arguments for what you believe. So backfire effect is essentially that when you have a belief in something that's strongly uh, connected to kind of your worldview, that when you are given evidence that's to the contrary instead of being like oh maybe I should consider that you you instead double down on your idea almost violently
1: yeah no I I totally agree with that I I have it written down as at its most extreme um it's a prime example of cognitive dissonance um that's beliefs that are mutually exclusive at the same time um, in this case, the backfire effect would be whatever your belief is. And then also, like, when you hear something that contradicts that, you uh, just dismiss it as untrue. Um, and I I wish I had, like, longer notes <laughs> on the backfire effect subject that you were really excited to talk about, but I have very I mean, brief things written here.
0: I don't think um, it actually has to be talked about in depth. It just We just need to... I don't think anybody that spends any time thinking about this or looking for it, it's going to take long for them to realize how prevalent it is, uh, not just even in social media, but in regular media and in the world, or at least in the United States, probably the world, but in the United States right now with everything going on, you know? And what's important to realize is just because your belief is right, doesn't mean that you're not still falling victim to this, right? So when you hear some sort of evidence or whatever that says that your idea is uh, incorrect, if you are disregarding it out of hand without even looking at the information to check its validity, I mean, that's kind of the same thing, isn't it?
1: Oh, yeah, I would agree with that. Like, it's just what happens when you get really, really entrenched in your belief system. You know, they've done some studies where, like, the when people have been, or had their core beliefs insulted or refuted or whatever, they feel like genuine pain, like the response in their brain is the same that, Um, because those things are such a core part of what we believe, and that's why and I actually have the phrase double down <laughs> written, in interesting that you presented that when you were describing the effect in the first place, you know it's it's for very very entrenched in their beliefs and which for all i think is true for all of us depending on the belief i think almost everyone has at least something they believe in so strongly about that it's easier to reject contradictory evidence um and less painful to do so than to admit that something so important to you
0: could be incorrect i think you're absolutely right there so we've got that's kind of the main biases i want to talk about we've got some other stuff i just kind of want to Uh, breeze through it, talk about it just for a second, not spend too much time on it uh, because we're running out of time. But uh, one of the kind of things that I wanted to talk about was anecdotal evidence, right? We hear it all the time. It's used all the time. Uh, Essentially, anecdotal evidence is a story either that you use or that somebody else uses that, you know, the problem with it is there's no way of verifying that it is one true at all to not exaggerated anyway because we all have our own biases and memory issues and recalling things. There's no, there's nothing that there's no system utilized in the collection of this information that has given it any sort of verification or validity is, is essentially the problem here.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with that but I think the important thing with anecdotal evidence is just to realize why it's so persuasive. Like anecdotal evidence is relatable and like, that's why so many people fall kind of trapped to it um you know experiences as valid support for our beliefs and we just assume that other people do the same thing you know when especially when people are telling us a story that kind of perpetuates the beliefs we already hold you know we view that story through the lens of the person telling it unless it contradicts our beliefs in which case we and go hey that's anecdotal evidence right (laughs) But if it suits our beliefs, we think, you know, they had an experience that affirms how I feel. They must be like me. You know, how could they be wrong?
0: You're absolutely right. And I want to point out, too, that we, when you're doing science or social science or studies or anything of that nature, we tend to paint anecdotal evidence as being useless and not helpful. But I would, you know, I did my due diligence in thinking about this. And I think that we can honestly say that there is a very individualized uh, usage for anecdotal evidence and that is for you as an individual when when thinking about things uh, it is useful for disproving all or never statements right so if you know something's happened to you and you read a statement that says this never happens I mean that's valid right
1: yeah. a really really good point I had never considered anecdotal evidence in that way but I think you know that that's actually really useful um, and I had something more to say about it, but I'm just, I'm really pleased <laughs> with that point.
0: <laughs> so one of the things that comes up when, I, or that I've seen come up when arguing the anecdotal evidence in most scenarios isn't really relevant, is the question that isn't statistics just a bunch of anecdotal evidence?
1: Um, I would argue no, just purely based on how many different ways there are to acquire information that can be used in statistics. I mean, it is a whole bunch of different individual responses, I guess, but a lot of those things can be, like, really measured behaviors. I um, are extremely useful. I think they're often abused, um, and that people should really learn how to do statistics and see when the results they've been provided with are misleading.
0: I think that's absolutely right. I think the biggest issue here is the difference in how the data is collected, as you kind of mentioned. When you're collecting data for statistics, it should be a formal collection. There should be cross-checking. There should be some form of system to regulate you know, the the data that you're getting versus anecdotal stories. Now, if you're just sitting there having one person come up and give you their anecdotal story and then you know writing down yes or no or whatever i'd say that there might be an argument for it, but that shouldn't be the way that the majority of data is being collected
1: and even then if you're asking yes or no questions to several thousand people that makes it you know a lot more valid for extrapolating than if you're serving a small (laughs) amount of people like even anecdotal evidence can still prove useful if it's like being spread in a general enough and wide enough array um, like the note I have here is, uh, as far as things to look for, is to always look at sample sizes. Um, there's uh, a lot of mechanisms in place to ensure accuracy or just validity. Um, but it's also really important to configure, uh, to look into the in which your people are finding the information. You know, you can't learn a lot from nine out of ten people. But from 900 out of 1,000, you can get a lot more accurate information. I mean, there's a plateau eventually. I don't remember exactly what the like optimal amount of people for surveying is. If you survey like 1,000 people in Idaho about whether they wiped down, you can probably learn a lot um, about people in America, or at least that REIT part of the country in general. But that's not going to tell you anything about like the wiping habits of Tibetan monks, like right. the constant context is really key in statistics
0: that is a good point and that's one of the things i always tell people is to become familiar with research right at least in how to read a research paper because if there's one thing that i found over the course of my academic and professional career it's that media summaries of research are right in about almost none of the situations in which it occurs
1: yeah you can spin statistics like very very easily and very very hard unless you really know what you're looking for um it can be easy to be duped and uh i would like if you find a statistic that you find kind of hard to believe that's cited in a paper and they don't even provide to the study they're quoting then maybe take it with a grain of salt or do some googling on your own time
0: yeah i would have to agree with that So one thing I kind of want to jump into also is you kind of mentioned earlier about anecdotal evidence being readily believable because you're able to see that through that person's eyes. And it kind of it brings us into the idea of storytelling as a method of convincing people. Are you familiar with that?
1: Yeah, I think storytelling is very effective. It's a huge part of how we communicate as human beings. It's a big part of our lives. It's why we have things like Aesop's Fables and The Bible and like not to, you know, conflate the two, but um <laughs> it's storytelling is like a really big part of just Being human like back before we even had written word people like told history through stories that's so important to us is because humanizing our storytelling is really really humanizing and humanizing things is the best win. um that's why these people try and their opponents Uh, that's why the nazis gave jews like numbers and shaved their heads it's because you know when they don't seem like humans they're easy to kill and keep in concentration camps right that's why like And I guess another big part of that is uh, people who have been, or, like, dehumanized, kind of. uh, Sometimes, like, here in the Vandals, we had, like, the inebriated t-shirts or whatever it says after Boise. But what anecdotal evidence and uh, storytelling really does is that it humanizes issues. And when you can view things in a humanized sense, it makes them all land and a lot more swaying. It's attributed to Stalin, you know, like one death is a tragedy, like a million deaths is a statistic kind of a right. thing. Like that's that's that storytelling has. And the other thing about storytelling, particularly why appeals to emotion are so much stronger than appeals to authority or appeals to logic, um, is because you can't really tell someone that their feelings are wrong. Um and that's I know kind of a comfortable place for people to be and you know if you tell someone like hey you made me sad you don't get to tell that person that they're not sad you can explain why sadness might be an unwarranted response you can't tell someone that they don't feel their emotions
0: right so one of the things i was going to say is it kind of like i don't like storytelling as a method because for me this just like anecdotal evidence it doesn't mean anything to me on a i mean outside of the humanizing issue it doesn't there's nothing there's no facts there. There's no validation or verification of anything that's going on. And yet it's so prominent being used to convince people because it works. There's a story of, say, there's an issue of, you know, statistics being put out in how many transgender people are having issues with their doctors and getting the correct care that they need. When you give a number that says, you know, 90 percent of whatever are having these issues, people are like, uh. but on the flip side. Uh, when you give a story of a specific person and the ordeal that they went through, suddenly people start caring. And it drives me nuts that it, it's being used because it's effective, right?
1: Yeah, and I think that leads right into the identifiable victim effect.
0: Think, right, where absolutely. We're
1: going with that. Um, and a big part of that is human beings are just not set up to understand very large numbers in a conceptual way like it's just really beyond the scope of most people like to uh, come back to the holocaust again which this is just a coincidence i guess it was on the brain that was but million and we know that's a lot but you don't really have like an idea of just how many six million people Uh, i grew up in western washington and when you million is 10 times the population of seattle it puts that number into a context where I can understand the gravity of the situation. And right. I think that's part of what storytelling does. It takes broader concepts and it puts them in measurable terms and in numbers that we can really understand.
0: And that might be where my issue comes from because of my background in dealing with physics. I spent a lot of my academic career dealing with very, very large and very, very small numbers. And when you work with that on a regular basis, I think it becomes maybe not easier to visualize but easier to contextualize those numbers and maybe that's why i don't seem to have a problem with statistics as much as some people do
1: sounds like you have a bias
0: it might be <gasps> all right so that's kind of where i wanted to end it with the the ideas of of storytelling and anecdotal evidence right now i just kind of want to i want to label just a couple of interesting biases i notes uh if you don't you don't have to have any feedback if you don't want to or whatever. It's just things I want to notice I kind of find interesting. Uh, one of them is perceiving familiar patterns where none exist. I think that's interesting. And that has to do with, like, randomized data. We actually, when we see patterns in something that's random, we actually perceive it to not be random, which I find interesting.
1: I wanted to talk about parietal for just a second because I find it really, really interesting. Sure. Um, so basically, yeah, it's our brain is wired to find patterns and things. Uh, one of the things that our brain is pursuant to find patterns in is faces. And I personally, I see faces in like wood grain or like chairs and cars, like the way the bolts are lined up actually makes things look like faces. Um, and that's cause there's a specific region of the brain that identifies things as faces and you can lose that ability. And it's called prosopagnosia. Really? makes it so you can't recognize faces anymore
0: so they wouldn't be um, able to see jesus's face in toast
1: yeah you start recognizing people their hair or the way that they dress factors but their your brain loses the ability to see a face and know who it is like you or like just recognizing it as a face like it just becomes kind of background noise
0: that's interesting. Um, I've not heard that. And I just I think
1: it's interesting because like finding patterns and things is kind of the source of all biases, really. It's just finding a pattern and extrapolating it to the point where it's no longer useful, or at least becoming uh, kind of a hindrance to us. Sure. But there's also these like uh, interesting ways that our brain finds patterns and things, like seeing animals in the clouds or like faces in wood grain. Like that's all like pareidolia. That's all just our brain finding patterns and things. And I think that's like strange and beautiful.
0: I have to agree. I never, I mean, obviously I'm aware of that because everybody does that since they're a kid. I never attributed that to this particular issue. So that's interesting that that is the case. Well, I'm glad you mentioned it. it was, uh, I love it when I learn things uh, on my own podcast. It, it makes it worth doing even more so, I guess. <laughs> so the next one I want to talk about is the Barnum Effect. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Barnum Effect. Uh, and this is, this is why things like astrology seem to propagate so well it's the idea that a statement can be generalized enough that it can literally apply to almost anybody but written in such a way that makes it seem like it's specific to them right
1: oh god as as someone you know who went to school for psychology there are few things i find more annoying um and there are so many examples of this like Astrology is probably the one that most people can relate to. Uh, The next one would probably be any quiz you read on Facebook. (laughs) Um, Like really, really bothers me as a student of psychology is the Myers-Briggs.
0: Oh yes.
1: Because people, it's just scientific enough that it makes people like scientific for having taken it. Um, And I mean, to a degree, it's, I guess, a little bit more valid than a Facebook quiz. You know, there's a lot of research behind it. But it has really low, like, reliability and validity. Like, you could get a different result if you were, like, in a worse mood when you took it, like, the second time four weeks later or whatever. Like, oh my god, there's... Oh, I, I get, like, genuinely irritated when people are like, I'm an INFP, which means that when I'm in this circumstance, I behave this way. Like right. at a certain point, are you behaving that way? Because like, that's the way you would behave. Or are you behaving that way? Because that's the box that you've put yourself in.
0: Right. And there's so many of these, these things that have come across. Like I've took one that's called a colors personality test once that, uh, is more broad, I guess. And, but the thing is, is you're absolutely right. it, it, it comes into effect here because if you read any of these descriptions, uh, you can easily associate them with yourself because humans are complex and we all, we don't just act one way. I would like to say that I personally believe that there's a lot of truth behind just the generalized idea between introvert and extrovert. But, uh, outside of that, I think I, I, mostly agree, I with
1: agree with that. I think introverts and extroverts, you know, it's, the basis of that concept is a real thing, um, but no one, like, almost no one, falls all the way onto like one sure. end or the other. It's completely a spectrum, and for the love of God, people should stop calling themselves fucking ambiverts. If you think you're an ambivert, you're a normal fucking person.
0: I have never heard it's of that. People.
1: It's it's become a phase, especially in the last year, and like half of my Facebook friends have been like, oh my God, I found this. This is totally me. Turns out I'm an ambivert. And it's people introverted in some situations, but extroverted in others. And there will be examples like, some of the life of the party, but then you have to come home and recharge.
0: So they just described essentially every person that's ever existed, yeah? Yeah. All right, well, I think we kind of discussed that. The, the very last one that I wanted to mention, just because I find it hilarious for no other reason, it's a valid thing, but they call it the IKEA effect, and that's the idea that something has a higher value if you helped create it or built it yourself, even if it's the same or shittier quality. So I just find that amusing. Um,
1: I also, it ties it a little bit um, to something called the sunk coffee, Um, And that's something that I think search because it guaranteedly applies to your life in some way.
0: What was the name of Um, it again?
1: It's called the sunk cost bias. Okay. Um, It's a really common thing in psychology of judgment and decision-making as well as behavioral economics. Uh, It's something Dan Ariely talks about. And uh, I know that I was pitching him pretty pretty hard earlier. Right. Uh, So the sunk cost bias is when and you, it's when you keep investing into something because you've already put an, like so much time and effort into it that you and you know, it's a lost cause. But because you've already put time and effort into it, you don't want to give up. It applies to relationships. It applies to like pet projects. Any aspect of life into which you put time and effort, right? Um, and at a certain point, you realize you should quit, and you just don't because you've already put time and effort into it. So it feels like a waste, but what you eventually have to realize is, you know, you're not going to get that time or effort back. Like right. you're just going to continue wasting more of it. That's why it's called the sunk cost bias, because you've already sunk that cost. You know, there's no recouping it. So, the- and I
0: think that's probably based go,
1: on, yeah, really the on the
0: on the idea that if you walk away from it, it's gone. The end. Where instead you're holding on to some idea that if you keep going, maybe, even though it looks absolutely impossible, just maybe you might get something out of it and make it not a complete loss.
1: Yeah, like I think relationships are probably the best example of it. It's like, man, I've been in this relationship for like four years and we hate each other. But also it's been like four years. So what would I do
0: otherwise? Right. Alright, well uh that's all that I had. Is there anything else that you wanted to to know or talk about? I don't
1: really have much besides telling everyone to um I guess uh Daniel Kahneman is really interesting. Um him and, uh, oh yeah, Simon Tversky, or Amos Tversky. Kahneman Tversky are two of the, like, kind of grandfather of the study of heuristics and biases. So if this is a subject that interests you, uh, their research is really, really integral to it. I would recommend them.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I know we had a lot of schedule issues in getting this uh, uh, knocked down here, so I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I had a really good time. I'm happy I could help. I hope I a little information.
0: Uh, absolutely. All right, well, we'll go ahead and end it there. Uh, thanks, everybody, for, for watching on Twitch, for listening on the podcast, and uh, we'll see you next time i don't
1: care about the state of art everything i cared about is falling apart don't want to hear about the new design i don't mind if i get left behind
0: This has been another episode of A Dash of Science. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you check us out at www.facebook.com slash dash of science, where you can also get access to our Discord channel. Also check out our website at dashofscience.com. And again, if you have any questions, any comments, any suggestions, please make sure and send them to chris at dashofscience.com. Alright, thank you. I want everybody to have a wonderful week. And remember, as you're going through and listening to the news or other people on social media, to keep in mind that perhaps you might be falling victim to a cognitive bias. Alright, have a good week. For you. Just As always, the music of this podcast is State of the Art by Brad Sucks. If you like his music, you can check him out at bradsucks.net.